Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The letter to the church at Ephesus. Just to provide a little context before we dive into the letter, we need to have a brief understanding of chapter 1 as it sets the context and scene for the seven letters. Jesus introduced himself by more names in the book of Revelation than the rest of the Bible. Each time he gives himself a title, it is to reveal something of his character or purpose. Jesus begins by identifying himself with three titles and two purposes in verses 5 and 6. Faithful witness, first to rise from the dead, ruler of all the kings of the world. Notice he wants us to know that being a faithful witness and the firstborn are more important than ruler over all the kings. The first two are about who he is. The third is just hierarchy. Character will always trump hierarchy. Then Jesus introduces his purposes. He loves us and has freed us by the shedding of his blood. He has made us a kingdom of priests. John is deep in worship. He's worshipping in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day wasn't Sunday. It's never called that in the Bible. The Lord's Day, under the rule of Domitian, was what had been Empress Day. The cult of Caesar as divine had been steadily growing and under Domitian had become fully blown. Domitian decreed that he was divine and began calling himself God. While Empress Day required subjects of Rome to declare loyalty to Caesar, under Domitian that became the Lord's Day and subjects had to burn a pinch of incense and on an altar before a magistrate declare Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the earliest Christian creed and no Christian could burn incense and declare Caesar is Lord and yet to refuse was treason. It could mean death, imprisonment, loss of property, inability to trade. John was deeply in worship because the people he loved were in danger. Some would die, some would be imprisoned, others would be punished. People he knew and loved would die that day. But John was not lamenting, he was worshipping. It was into this situation Jesus appears and says, I have a message for these churches we both love. John didn't give Jesus a high five or a casual greeting, as often people seem to do with God. Of all people, surely John was better placed than anyone to greet Jesus. Not only was John the disciple Jesus loved, but he must have earned brownie points for looking after Jesus' mother, Mary. And yet how did Jesus respond? He fell down as if dead. We can go boldly before the throne of grace. We talk with Jesus all the time, but there is a point where he is coming and he will come of judge of the living and the dead. And I think we need to remember that in that moment, he will be fearful. I think it was um, 
in one of the books by C.S. Lewis, he says of Aslan, he is a lion, but he isn't tame. And I think with Jesus, we forget that when he comes in power, he will be fearful. Jesus was dressed in a white and white with a sash. Sounds very much like a high priest on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16.4. And I do want to come back to some of these descriptions later, but there's a few I just want to mention. Another is Jesus had a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's not just that his words are sharp and powerful. They are, but I think it's more than that. Roman governors were given an Aeus Gladius, which was a term expressing full criminal jurisdiction conferred by the emperor on the provincial governors. Jesus was telling us his words carried the power to judge. His words are not just powerful, they are absolute power over life and death. We see Revelation as a Jewish book, which of course it is, and it's full of imagery from the Old Testament, possibly five to fifteen hundred different references. But it's also a book that draws on Roman imagery. There is an element of the book that's subversive and contrasts Roman power with the divine power of Jesus. Some of what we see in chapter 1 could be as Roman as it is Jewish. We know that seven is an important number in Jewish literature, but it's also important in Roman history. Rome is a city built on seven hills with seven kings and had an arch of seven lamps built in AD 81 to celebrate the fall of Jerusalem. I believe that when Jesus refers to the angels of the seven churches, he is not drawing from Jewish history, but Roman. I know it may sound a bit odd, but please bear with me for a moment. Claudius minted a coin with seven stars in honour of the divine Augustus, as did Vespasian and Titus. Then in 82-83, Domitian minted a coin to remember his deceased son, which showed him among the seven stars. Domitian also declared himself as God, celebrated his son, who was immortal in the domain of the blessed dead, as a son of God. The coin actually states divine, and hence it's known as DCCT. Could that be the origin of the seven stars mentioned in Revelation 1? And Revelation 2 1 and 3 1? I think it might be. There are different explanations for what the angels could be that Jesus holds in his hands. One, the idea of them being heavenly angels. I think this is unlikely as it assumes that Jesus is writing to an angel rather than just commanding him. Are angels really responsible for churches? If so, how does that work? How do we consult with them? How do they communicate with us or us with them? And the letter indicates that the angel is part of the church. They are part of the responsibility, part of the reward. Another idea I've heard is that angels are pastors that the seven stars held in Jesus' hands are the pastors of the seven churches. I was recently told that by a pastor who added it as a high office. 
This theory has several problems. One, pastors are never mentioned anywhere as stars. In fact, the entire New Testament only refers to pastors twice. And even then, it's difficult. In 1 Peter 5, 1, where they're mentioned, it's a verb, and so it's indicating that they are shepherding. That same description is used of elders in Acts 20, verses 28. The one time that it's mentioned as a position is in Ephesians 4, 11, and there it's bracketed with teachers. What I mean by bracketed is that there are only definite articles for apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher, indicating that pastor and teacher are in fact the same role. And this is certainly consistent with 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9 that says an elder must be able to teach. We have no evidence that in this time there were sole pastors. Throughout the New Testament, whenever we see leaders of churches, we see elders plural. I accept that we would soon have bishops or overseers. But historically, it's difficult to justify that position. Don't you find it interesting that in Revelation 1.6, Jesus says, He has made us a kingdom of priests for God as Father. And then a few verses later, seven people are stars. In verse 6, we're all priests. By verse 19, we have an elitist class. Another possibility is the word angel was a messenger, or the person that carried the letter. Remember in Bible times, the word angel didn't mean heavenly being as it does exclusively now. We tend to think of an angel as a heavenly being, or maybe someone that is incredibly special. But in Bible times, the word angel simply meant a messenger, a heavenly being, or someone that served. So is it possible that the churches had actually sent people over to provide care for John? And those same people that had provide care were bringing back the letters. These letters were at least seditious, and so carrying them would be dangerous. And maybe John wanted to convey the fact that they were under the care and protection of God. Certainly Schofield thought so, and I think it's a possibility. But another possibility is very different and not based on Jewish or church understanding, but really is a swipe at Domitian. In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus dismantles the beliefs that Domitian has about himself and explains why everything Domitian may think Jesus is greater. After all, that is the point of Revelation. Jesus is greater and he wins. Domitian minted his coins with D-I-V-V-S in 82-83, indicating he saw himself as divine. Hence, the coin is referred to as D-C-T-T. These coins depicted his deceased son, the Son of God with the seven stars. These were coins at the time, common and handled, every day a constant reminder of who Domitian believed he was. Pneumomastists, people that study coins, money and metals, generally agree that a star and coinage serves as a major symbol of deification for the members of the imperial family.
Can I just read that again? A star and coinage serves as a major symbol of deification for the members of the imperial family. Was Jesus actually using the stars to refer to the people in those churches as his family? If you want to find out more about that idea, there's a brilliant paper called Jesus the Holder of the Seven Stars in His Right Hand, an Examination of Revelation 16a in Light of Numomastic Evidence. It's by Sangwa Lee. Well worth the read. So is another possibility that the stars are Jesus' family, his bride, his people. The people he holds so precious that he keeps them in his right hand, the hand associated with power and strength. After all, the word star, while not used of pastors, was commonly used in the Bible to refer to family. <coughs> Consider the family of Abraham, called a star in Genesis 26.4. Joseph referred to his brothers as stars in Genesis 37.9. And the people of Israel are referred to as stars in Exodus 32.13, Deuteronomy 1.10 and 10.22, First Chronicles 27.23, Nehemiah 9.23 and Jeremiah 33.22 to mention a few. The imagery of God's people as stars was common in biblical literature. Imagine if Jesus is saying the angels are the saints, the people of God, that Jesus holds his people in his right hand. It's also a common theme in scripture. In fact, the idea is mentioned dozens of times in the Bible, considering the common of the following verses. Psalm 27.10, Psalm 63.8, Psalm 73.23, Psalm 139.10, Isaiah 41, 10 and 13, John 10 verses 28 and 29, 1 Peter 5.6. What about the idea of referring to people as angels? Was that common? Well, more so than what you might think. Again, that same word that is used and translated as angel is also the same word that is translated as messenger at different times. And so again, it becomes confusing. But Jesus refers to John the Baptist as a messenger, as a messenger that same word, as angel, in Matthew 11.10. Jesus refers to his disciples as messengers or angels, Luke 9.52. John the Baptist sent out messengers slash angels, Luke 7.24. Even Rahab received messengers slash angels, James 2.25 There is plenty of evidence to suggest that Jesus was referring to family. That in fact the stars are family. We have plenty of biblical evidence to see stars being used for family. Angels being used for people. And the fact that God holds us in his hand. I don't believe that it was an elitist group. I believe that people that Jesus holds in his hands are those that he loves, that he died for, that he bled for. Anywho, Jesus identifies himself as the one who walks amongst the lampstands. Jesus wants them to know he is Emmanuel, God with them. He is not a distant God, but in this difficult time, he is with them. He is our faithful High Priest.
So to the letter of Ephesians. If we go by the usual division of the letter into different parts, we've got the title of the church. The title, Jesus Reveals, that the church needs to know about him. The compliment, complaint, consequences, warning and reward. To the church in Ephesus, the church we know the most about in church history. A significant city, second only to Rome. It was a stronghold of Caesar worship, along with worship to Diana and Dionysus. Jesus identifies himself as the one who walks amongst them. As I said before, he wants them to know he is Emmanuel, God with them. Not a distant God, but in this typical time he is with them. A faithful high priest. Jesus compliments their patience and endurance and suffering and their discerning of false apostles. Patient and endurance and suffering sounds like they were doing it tough, and they were. This was a city that was given to the cult of Caesar worship of Diana and of Dionysus. Diana was worshipped by music, dancing, singing, dramatic presentations and chanting of allegiance. Dionysus, the god of wine, was worshipped by drinking, wild dancing, and people whipping themselves up into an ecstatic state where they believed they were in a divine presence. kind of makes you read Ephesians 5, 18-20 differently, doesn't it? Especially when you know that that is written to the same group of people. These were a group of people who could identify false apostles. Paul tells us how we do this in 2 Corinthians 11. He tells us in verse 7, they use their position to profit. In verse 12, they look for opportunities to boast. Verse 13, they deceive. In verse 20, they enslave you. However, verse 4 tells us that people were impacted by a false prophet if you happily put up with what anyone tells you. The onus is on us to be discerning, to weigh and sift what we hear. If not, you might find yourself paying, feeling inferior to, being deceived and enslaved by a false apostle. There's plenty of them around today. The Ephesians had lost their first love. We attribute this to losing their first love of the Lord. But in actual fact, the Greek could say they lost their love, their first love or the love they had at first. This could be the love for each other. And I think this is more likely. The church patiently endured, patiently suffered, worked out who were the false apostles. They didn't follow the Nicolaitans. I don't think they lost their love for God, but for each other. And if you read the book of Ephesians, it tends to bear that out. There's some really interesting things that come out in the first chapter. It's obvious that Paul is talking to two groups when you consider the language. In the first nine verses, we see this us being used. Blessed us, chose us, adopted us, us who belong, our freedom, kindness on us, revealed to us. Paul is talking about the history of the Jews. And then in verse 10, he will bring everything together. In verse 11, we are united in Christ. And now instead of us, 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 it is now you Gentiles 
have heard the truth. And you also read, God saved you. And God identified you. And then in verse 14, we have a different us. He will give us that he has purchased us. I believe that Paul was talking to two groups and he was making it really clear that while they were distinct, in Christ they were united. And in Christ they had the same future and the same hope. And certainly that's consistent when you read through Ephesians. The first three chapters is about talking of God's love for us and how he's provided for us. And then the next three chapters are about how we work together. In verses 4, 1 to 6, we have seven things that build unity and seven things that we have unity in. And then we learn about how to look after each other, how to care for each other, how as husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves and masters, we need to behave towards one another. I believe that this was about building unity. Are we focused on building unity? How do we genuinely follow the first commandment if we don't follow the second, to love one another? The Ephesian church didn't agree with the Nicolaitans. History indicates that they were antinomous as supported by Revelation 2.6. But we really don't know a whole lot about them. What's really interesting is that in Acts chapter 6 verse 5, as Luke is identifying the deacons, he only lists one of them with their place of origin, and that's Nicholas who comes from, from Antioch. Antioch was a place that was associated with sin. Some scholars believe that that's where the prodigal son went. It was the land far away. Harvard magazine identifies Antioch as the third largest city in the known world, and it was wicked. The magazine says, something we associate with Venice in the 18th century, with Paris in the 19th century, and Hollywood today. It's believed that Nicholas is the founder of the Nicolaitans, hence the name, and that Luke gave us his origin as a clue. Nicholas left Antioch. Antioch never quite left Nicholas. We need to be wholly consecrated. Ephesians, who were victorious, were promised the fruit of the tree of life in paradise. What is the tree of the fruit of life? It's eternal life. Genesis 3.22 says, What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. Is it possible there is a connection between how Jesus introduces himself and his reward? His introduction is to provide them with what they need to know. I think the promise is connected. Jesus tells us he keeps his family in his right hand, the place of safety and care. The promise is to live forever in paradise. Where else could paradise be? but to be kept in God's presence, sustained and safe by his power. 
joining the Cultivate podcast. If we can help you with anything or you'd like some notes, please email us at crosscultivation at gmail.com. God bless.